you know, when you have grief that's couched with um, anger or self-loathing or uh, abandonment or whatever, all these other emotions are around it. And finally, you know, as I've gotten older, I've been able to just kiss those birds and let them fly off and know that I'm beloved. But I still have this, I will always have this grief that things weren't what they would have been if the world weren't so broken or if these things hadn't happened, hap hadn't happened. And, um, and now I would say it's clean grief to where I'm able to love those who hurt me deeply. That doesn't mean I want relationship with them because that even wouldn't be a loving thing, I don't believe. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. I'm so excited to be chatting today with Cheryl Gray Bostrom, and Cheryl is an author, a photographer, as well as a poet, and today we will be talking about her book, Sugar Birds, and her life story. Sugar Birds was the winner of the 2021 American Fiction Awards in Literary Fiction, General Fiction, and Cross-Genre Fiction categories, and finalist in Religious Fiction, Silver Medalist in 2021 Reader's favorite awards in inspirational fiction, as well as fiction finalists in the upcoming 2022 Christianity Today Book Awards. And if you guys think that I did that all in one take, you are wrong. <laughs> Cheryl and I know the truth. <laughs> Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. So good to see you. <laughs> so good to see you again. We chatted um, prior to this interview and we uh, could not stop talking uh, when we met, you know, a week prior to recording this. And so uh, we're excited to be sitting here, seeing each other's radiant faces. Um, and you are in Washington state. So let's hear a little bit about your life, your where you live and your upbringing, and then we'll go into this book. and And people may not realize how uh, how much uh, they will be inspired even by this fictional book in their own grief story. So we're we're going to dive into that in in just a little bit. But tell us then, where are you located and family, all that kind of jazz? Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, I live in far northwest Washington state within about a stone's throw of the Canadian border and a short oh, 20 minute drive from the coast. And I was raised in Washington on the Olympic Peninsula and some pretty wild with pretty wild country surrounding us. And so my love of nature, which shows up in all my work, um, I come by that pretty naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the eldest of five and I was raised in a, a very 
difficult home with a lot of trauma. And, um, and yet from the age of 10, I always wanted to write a novel, avoided it because I was doing a lot of other forms of writing and helping other people with their books, taught. But I guess in, in, intrinsically, I knew that writing fiction would be the greatest place to tell truth. And I just, it wasn't the right time. So when I reached mm -hmm. the age of 60, I started learning that craft. And uh, yeah, and this book emerged out of a, actually out of a writing group when um, I, when I wrote a sketch about a girl and a fire. And I had little, little inkling that my personal story would emerge so much out of this, um, in this book and in a couple of the characters in particular. And uh, it wasn't planned, <laughs> but but it came. It just birthed. It birthed. It birthed as you were writing. Um, that is that is amazing because you you said something about that fiction was the repeat that part that you said again. Fiction writing fiction was the best way to tell. A, you you said something that your true story. Yeah, fiction. What and I I I'd watched other people do this um, because they're but that fiction is probably the best way to tell truth you know you're making mm -hmm. a story but you can you can incorporate elements of truth and elements of uh of one's perception with a freedom that at least for me who's pretty private i i i wouldn't do in a memoir i don't think i wouldn't uh i wouldn't i wouldn't put some of that stuff out there because it you know our our griefs and our our stories as a whole are these are like precious birds that we hold in our hands and and uh we need to we need to treasure them we need to nurture them when they're wounded we need to you know kiss them and help them fly and and uh fiction was a beautiful way for me to do that mm. that's so beautiful thank you for sharing that you know it's um it's true because you can go deep into places in a fiction, right? Into storylines and go deep into the emotions and feelings and create situations in which these feelings and emotions are brought up that is sharing that truth of not only the character, but then also then the author, even though the circumstances around what they're experiencing may be different than yours, the emotions are the may be the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like editing a picture. You know, you can um, you can enhance certain areas and you can diminish other areas to to make the point or the statement or to bring across the theme of a photograph. And you can do the same same in your writing. But you know, when I talk about being private, I you know I it, during times in my life I've kept a lot of journals, but I always toss them. I always burn them because I, I really am not, you know, I'm keenly aware of my own mortality mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and oftentimes um, some of those entries are written out of times of greatest angst or greatest grief or greatest sorrow. And they aren't the whole picture, you know, the, the joy that emerges from that. I often don't write about, you know, except in a story like this one. Um, and so I don't even write journals anymore because I don't want those to be discovered as only part of a story. Mm. <laughs> so, so I'll incorporate wow. them into. Does that make sense? I mean, it's absolutely, like absolutely. You know, and as you're saying that, it's like the journals are the what would be, and this is what would be the other side of a coin. I'm in my Spanglish here. Um, 
And this is the the opposite of, for example, how in um, Facebook or Instagram, people are putting these slices of life that are like what you want the world to see. Your journals would be like the other face of that. Yeah, it would yeah. be like this, right? So um, that it, that just kind of, you know, brought, yeah, a lot of different thoughts to mind. And also, like you're saying, it's saying one part of the story, saying the moment, how you felt in that moment, not necessarily sometimes a resolution of that emotion either, right? Because you might not write in your journal, like how it was that you resolved that, you know, whatever instance of what you were living through. <laughs> Yeah, it's all raw material, you know, and, and, and I'm a Christ follower and my, my personal relationship with God is, is really what saved my life, you know, and as he showed himself to me, as he revealed himself through the natural world, which is what I try to incorporate many layers of the natural world and what I write about, but uh, there's nothing, I, I'm absolutely believe that there's nothing that happens to us that can't be redeemed and that can't be healed and that can't lead to um, a profound experience of joy beyond what really makes any sense mm -hmm. or of gratitude or of of um, you know of just meaning and and so in in the story do you want me to talk should I talk about that yeah, yeah if you want to talk about the story and the characters or we can go into the backstory what, where would you like to start about the what was the inspiration about writing the story and your um and in your life that kind of catapulted this creation and birthed it or the characters where would you like to start I, I think I'll give a little bit of a little bit about the story because okay. then when we talk about my backstory listeners will be able to tie the two together perfect and um and so this is a story it's a it's a dual narrative and there are two young characters one one girl is 10 and her name is Aggie and she has a mom who's suffering from mental illness which is increasing her mom's manic depressive um and she's losing her mom she's she can't connect to her anymore her mom's angry there's she's just and she's heartbroken and angry about this and she doesn't know what to do with it she's 10 years old so her dad who's uh, an arborist and a um, you know worked at the they have an heirloom seed company and he was um, part of the Alaska Forest Service before they moved back to Washington it's set in northwest Washington state right where we live um, teaches her to sketch the nests of wild birds um, to help her cope with her sadness and then he talks to her about you know the healing and uh, that's pr present in the natural world and and teaches her about the character of god that she can see in nature and and so she's reluctant at first but she she does start climbing trees to very very great heights to to watch these eggs hatch and to sketch these these birds when she comes home um one one day when her mom forbids her to climb, she uh, through a series of circumstances, she lights a terrible fire. It burns her house down. She watches that house burn down from this tree house, and she watches her parents' bodies carried out. So she thinks she's killed her parents. And so here's this little 10-year-old girl who has her worldview changed in an instant and believes that she's hated and that she's going to jail and that no one will love her ever again. And her, you know, she's wild with grief, wild with guilt. 
and sorrow. And so she runs, she goes to the only place that she believes she can find solace and she goes and hides in the woods. And so for a month, people are looking for this little girl. And because of her skills of everything that her dad has taught her about survival, about climbing, she is able, even dogs, she's able to evade these searchers for, you know, for a long time. And, and yet I, I realized in, in writing her and I kind of, I, I had written it before I even realized it, <clears throat> but that she, she is running from the love that would bring her home mm. and her, her grief and her guilt are so profound and she becomes so shame-based that she, she, she hides from those who are desperately searching for her, wanting to love her, believing that they only want to condemn her. And, mm. and so that's the crux of her story and then of her emerging from that story. And then the, the, the opposing narrative is the 16-year-old girl named Celia, whose dad has, um, has tricked her into coming up to stay at her grandmother's in, um, in Northwest Washington. And her grandmother's a bird, bird biologist and Celia likes working with her on, on rehabilitating these birds, but she's still furious at her dad for leaving her. Her dad has brought her up there because she's gotten involved with this girl who's nothing but trouble. And her mom has also abandoned the family. So this girl has a lot of angst and a lot of anger. And she arrives right at the time this search for Aggie starts. So she joins this search team where she meets um, a guy who's really bad for her. And she also meets th this kid on the spectrum named Burnaby, who teaches her a lot about life. So that's the story in a nutshell. You know, the, the grandmother's a big player, the two you know, the two young men are these two girls. And even though they're young characters, it's an adult novel because it's dealing with themes of the heart and themes of, of tragedy and places where we've failed as parents, failed as adults, failed as children. And yet what happens out of that? What, what, how is that ever redeemed? How do we ever find joy out of things that seem too horrible to be redeemed? So that's the story. <laughs> oh, yes. And I haven't read it. And now I'm curious as to how it is they find joy after all this and how these two, you know, stories, because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, like you said, it's a dual story. So at some point, somewhere in the middle, is it that then uh, Celia starts with the search? Is it kind of like you don't know that these two stories are going to be connected? Is that the well, type of book it is? Or she does joins, she start the Yeah, she joins the search pretty early. And in the book, okay. I don't want there to be any. I don't want there to be any spoilers, but it's really. I know. About, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's about this, you know, this this coming together, and uh, yeah. And that's wonderful. No, now you see. Now I have to I have to read it because I need to know the ending, <laughs> and not just the ending. I need to know what you know occurred to take them to the ending. You um. You mentioned these words uh, earlier on, and also when we were speaking the other day, were the words resilience and redemption. And you said, you know, that part that nothing really happens in our life, that there can't be that redemption from. So let's go into then a little bit about your, your life and how then your backstory turned out to be the inspiration to your writing. Sure. Um, well, as the eldest of five, um, my mom divorced when, when, uh, when I was about five. Um, and, um, 
she, I guess the best, the best way to say is that we were really, we were raised in, in a lot of chaos and uh, a lot of, a lot of trauma. And, and there wasn't, although we had grandparents who loved us very much and we spent a lot of time with them, you know, we came from a generation where people weren't talking about stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so we were pretty much left to our own devices. I'd say we were feral kids, you know, so we would, we would head into the woods, um, head, you know, in the, on the Olympic Peninsula, our town sat right in the foothills, right at the foot of the Olympic mountains and on the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And whenever we, um, yeah, whenever things got crazy, we would, we would head out in the woods and particularly my sister and I would climb trees sometimes by ourselves, sometimes together, but we would climb to the ridiculous heights that Aggie climbs to in this story. Now, Aggie's able to move between trees pretty nimbly. We didn't do that, but we did move between trees. So I know that it's possible. And, uh, and we took risks that probably were taken just out of sheer, uh, I don't know, sorrow, um, abandonment, recklessness that's born from feeling that you're unloved. You know, when we're, when we feel unloved, we can be reckless with these precious lives we have. Uh, in the story, Aggie climbs because she has a father beneath her. And I, I have since learned, and in my faith walk too, that when we have a father undergirding us and loving us and treasuring us, we can climb to great heights. Mm. And, and, uh, and so there are a couple of dads, you know, both Celia's and Aggie's dads disappear for a while in this story. And when they do, these girls' lives change and they make different kinds of choices. And I can say that hugely about my own life. I didn't have a I didn't have the presence of a father and I had a mother who was mentally ill and, uh, and, uh, you know, that the relationships that we have drive us and compel us into behaviors or choices that, um, that we may think have no possibility of redemption, but they do, you know, they, they do. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and so and so in the story what happens to these girls and what happens at the end could never have happened if they hadn't suffered mm. it, it, they could it could never have happened if they hadn't if egg in particular if she hadn't gone through what she did if what happened hadn't occurred the outcome would never have transpired and those are things beyond us we, we can't imagine them to me that to me they speak of a loving god who's who's caring for us and in, in, you know, and we can think that we're forgotten or that we're, you know, that we're abandoned, but a lot of that has to do with our perception of time. I know most of my life I've been pretty impatient. And if something hasn't happened in my time frame, then I, I tend to think it's not going to happen or that I've been forgotten because I did have a lot of abandonment issues, you know, and they're probably all still marching around there unless I remind them <laughs> of what I know now, you know, but, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lost my train Thank of thought. You. It's beautiful. No, no, no. It was perfect. You you said exactly what I what I was asking is to share a little bit of your own story. Thank you. Cheryl, the the title, Sugar Birds, can you share why the title or would that be a spoiler? Uh, 
You know, I think it's a spoiler because okay. it's, you're pretty well into the book before you find out what sugar birds are. Okay. But, but suffice it to say that it's something that applies to all of us and has nothing to do with feathers. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just, just wondering, cause I'm like, you know, there was some, some aspect of that. Now, how did your, um, interaction as a photographer, as a nature photographer, that, that, that relationship of you as a nature photographer play a role in your writing. Hmm. How do you think that, 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 I mean, I can, I, I, right now I'm making, I could probably answer that in my own storyline, but uh, of what I think it could have, you know, influenced, but how did that influence your writing? Oh, you have good questions, Kendra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, uh, it has a lot to do with the way I think. Um, I'm not a linear thinker at all, to the extent that uh, when I was in school myself and I would be asked to write an outline, I'd write it after I'd written the piece. And, and you know, as a, as, a high, as a high school English teacher for many years, you know, I would ask kids to outline, but there were others who, who, who thought like I did and I am, was totally okay with them putting together, you know, unless they were just all over the place and I'd say, come on, try to, try to get some rails around this so that you even know the direction you're going in. But I, I think more like a camera lens coming into focus. And so when I'm, and I'm outside every day with my camera and we live in country that's so breathtakingly beautiful that you just, you know, you almost can't just not be out there absorbing it in every season. And, and yet when I'm out there with my camera and I have a frame around a scene, I, I realize that I'm looking at life right there, right now in this frame that is this window of time that I've been given. So you can capture a photo, you can capture a photograph that, that speaks to you and says it'll, it can say different things and is interpreted through the eye of the frame that you put around it. And lots of times I'll take these pictures and as I look at them afterwards, the pictures will talk to me and even tell me what I was seeing or why I even framed it. And that's the same thing, of course, that, that happens in the story and in trying to recollect the, the Northwest and nature in that story has a lot to do with me looking into that frame, seeing how nature becomes a character itself in our own lives. And uh, yeah, I bet that's probably it. And then just the detail. I pay a lot of attention to detail. I like to think of myself as a noticer. I've been told that. Up listening to how you described just that moment, even in a picture, it was just so moving because I, I don't know, I just got moved of just like, I, I love observing nature and I love like taking pictures of sunsets and, or, you know, things like that. And because you kind of want to capture, <laughs> capture that moment. So, you know, I don't, I'm not a photographer, but, uh, but you, you said just, this is how you said it of just capturing that moment in time and that also the emotion in which you are in as a photographer in that moment too plays a part in how you compose it. Ah, I don't know. It was just so poetic how you describe <laughs> that. It just moved me because, you know, when something that really inspires me a lot in life is when I, um, meet people that are living to their potential and to what like they were created to do like it, it just 
it just touches my soul. And so when you were describing that and seeing you like visualize that, it just was moving, moving, it moved me. So thank you, you know, for sharing thing, that. Oh, thanks, Kendra. You know, one thing that's interesting though, even about photography is it's, it's, it's my goal, my ongoing goal to be able to live in the present. And I think when a person has had a lot of grief or trauma, you either tend to live in the past or you tend to race into the future, race toward the happiest next thing that you can or race, race, you know, and I've done so much of that in my life that it's been a long, slow learned, intentional discipline to try to be in the moment. And I'm not very good at it. Um, even when I look at these pictures afterwards and I go, oh my goodness, look at this scene. And I remember feeling it when I was there in it, but it's almost like it has more power in the recollection. And I don't want it to be that. I want it to remind me of my of having that same intensity of experience when I was in it. And that's coming, it, you know, it comes sometimes, it comes more than it used to, but to know that right now is enough and that I am beloved in this moment and there's giftedness all around me in it. I don't need to live like Aggie did where I'm believing, you know, that, um, that nobody could ever love me again because that was my early message, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so sometimes grief, this is going to sound like a leap because I'm, I'm jumping from the photography into this, but sometimes um, grief takes a long time to get clean. You know, when you have grief that's couched with um, anger or self-loathing or uh, abandonment or whatever, all these other emotions are around it. And finally, you know, as I've gotten older, I've been able to just kiss those birds and let them fly off and know that I'm beloved but I still have this, I will always have this grief that things weren't what they would have been if the world weren't so broken or if these things hadn't happened, hap hadn't happened. And, um, and now I would say it's clean grief to where I'm able to love those who hurt me deeply. That doesn't mean I want relationship with them because that even wouldn't be a loving thing, I don't believe but that I can, um, I can love deeply and I can still grieve what, what, what happened and what could, what, what never happened, what happened, what never happened and what could have been. So. I, had, I had never heard it put that way of the other types of emotions. I, cause grief is so complex, but the fact of how you describe that as a, you know, grief kind of being accompanied with these other things <laughs> other baggage <laughs> and then not allowing the person to truly grieve because they're kind of having all these other things around it uh that when you release those things and just carry just the grief itself is just different than when you're carrying it with the resentment with the uh anger you know anger with all these other emotions so uh thank you, you for and you yes. know what else Kendra? sorry to interrupt no um Another another thing about that is that 
I think that we cling to things like anger. I do. I did cling to the anger or the resentments because it gives, it, it gave me a false illusion that I could change the other person or that I could control the outcome. Because if I was, if I was angry, then, you know, anger bears fruit, right? Or, you know, it's like, it's like you, it's like you can do something about this pain, this heartbreaking pain of, of loss, mm -hmm. like you can do something about it. And so I even think about Kubler-Ross's, you know, steps and the mm -hmm. way we rotate through grief or whatever, you know, anger is a component in that, but um, there's tremendous freedom in letting go of control of all that stuff. You know, and to and 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 also control is an attempt. At least for me, I can't say this for everybody, but for me, it was an attempt to keep myself safe because mm -hmm. I was in some very you know unsafe situations when I was little, and um, and as you do that, you know, and the more you acknowledge it, the more you can um, can can get free. Mm. Yes, yes, yeah. So, so true. Yeah, it gives you a, a false sense of like you, you talked about control. These other emotions give you a false sense of control. Like you can actually control, you know, the the outcome when really it's you know, there's nothing to try to control or fix or anything like that um, with grief. Now, let let's talk about your growing up and having this. Um, experience in your life of your life not being the picture perfect quote unquote idea of what life would have looked like and how did your life kind of transform into you kind of coming to terms like you said of you know things happen really for us not to us component of, of, of life. So when did that realization that everything that had happened, just like with Aggie and her story, that had she not gone through what she goes through in the book, the outcome of the story would, you know, her life would have not been the same. When did that aha kind of moment happen within you? Or was it just so gradual that uh, hard to pinpoint? Um, you know how when you're 30 you think oh I get this now and when you're 40 you say oh I didn't get that at all now <laughs> I get it and then when you're 50 the same thing you know I, I, I think it's incremental mm -hmm. and um, the biggest thing for me was um, no I'll back up even further when I was little I can realize in retrospect I didn't realize at the time that it was God reaching for me but there were there were times when I was so inconsolable and so uh I mean things were just so dark that I can I can just see times and places where people who I later learned loved him reached out to me and took me in either through mentorship of some kind or you know having me spend the summer at their house or um just so many things I mean even as a as a junior high kid I can remember walking by this church on the way home from school I had about a mile walk and uh I didn't know anything about that church but I you know and I was I was young I was an 11 year old seventh grader 16 year old senior um, just walking in that church and just sitting in there and 
for that moment before I headed back into the firestorm at home, experiencing comfort and love. But it wasn't until I was 19 and in college that I, um, that I, um, that I met God in a way that was so personal to me and, and found out his deep love for me. And, um, and even then it's like taming a, taming a wild cat, you know, you, you don't, you don't just say, Oh, you love me. He's that great. <laughs> I'm just going to be just fine now. Um, you, you just keep moving and keep growing. And then gradually circumstances compound to where you realize more and more the truths about love, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. about forgiveness, about sorrow about all those things and that was really a random answer <laughs> no 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 it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't random I it it made sense because you you basically went you you shared really of uh God and the presence of God being really your comfort in this process of your of your life and that kind of being your Oh, your corner store stone, your uh, anchor in your in your life, right? In your in your teens, when you discovered his love for you. Yeah, and what was what's what's so amazing about about a walk with about my walk with Christ is that it wasn't just head knowledge of me deciding that I'm going to subscribe to this ideology, and that if I believe this these things then these things will help me in my decision making when i made a commitment to him i became indwelt by the holy spirit and i had this guide and this comfort inside of me that i can't even i can't even describe his peace i can't i can't begin to describe it but it was nothing born of me or nothing born of me deciding that i was going to feel just fine it was him saying I'm here. I'm going to love you. We're going to get through this. And this is not all there is. It's going to be okay. And I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know how much time it would take, you know, and like I said, I lost my, um, I, you know, I lost myself a number of times because I'm impatient and I would, and because I was familiar with abandonment, you know, or familiar with that. And I would, I would assign all those human failings to this God that I love. And then there he'd be again. He'd say, no, I didn't leave you. I didn't leave you. I'm here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I, so oh, that's beautiful. Now, now that you talked about love and abandonment, how did then that translate into now the family that you've had and that you have and being able to now be married? How many years have you been married? Uh, I've been with you. 45 years. Yeah. So how, you see the amount of transformation that had to occur for you to be able to have this solid relationship of 45 years, right? Because fear of abandonment is something that sometimes makes people then be the one to leave, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Before they're left. So, um, so that's a lot of growth, Cheryl. So I commend you for, oh my gosh, I mean, imagine how much <laughs> growth and the, the fact that you're, so tell us about your, your uh, life and your children and your grandmother and all this beautiful <laughs> present, your present. Tell us about your present. <laughs> well, you know, that 45 years really says a lot about my husband. <laughs> 
says more about him than it does about you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's given me, he's given me, you know, a lot of room to be who I am and he is Mm. just steadfast and loving and wonderful. And he's also very interesting. Remember, I am a runner (laughs) by nature, you know, if, if I can run to the next best thing, you know, Uh, I mean, that was my early, early pattern because, because, you know, you're, I'm, I'd rather, I mean, some people are fighters, some people fly, you know, the whole fight or flight thing, but I, I would escape if I, if I, um, if I felt like I was going to be harmed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so when I met him, was a soft sophomore. This is a fun story. I was was a sophomore, uh, sophomore in college and he asked me out once and I turned him down um junior junior year in college we went out for about six weeks and I without getting into all the details in it I broke it off and and he just vanished he wasn't going to (laughs) grovel he says that's what he says I didn't you know and so then a year later um he had just gotten into veterinary school and a friend who who knew how he had felt about me, one of his roommates, called and asked me just to make a congratulatory sign for him for this party. And so I took this sign to this party, went with my roommate. It was a big surprise party for him for getting into vet college. And um, and uh, he and I ended up talking until three in the morning. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what was I thinking to break up with this guy? This guy is amazing. <laughs> and we And we were engaged four months later. And so, oh, wow. and so, but one one of the things that that uh, made me fall in love with him, I mean, it's just one of many things. But um, he talked about how he 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 tried to make a robin's nest when he was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. he tried to sculpt it. You know, and I'm just a, a a bird lover and a nature lover. And he shared a lot. You know, he shared a lot of that same stuff. You know, and he would do these pen and ink sketches of of birds nests and and uh you know so many things okay so 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 many things so he captured me he captured my mind and he captured my heart and he was so so steady and I'd never known anyone steady and I've chafed against that at times because you know because of my innate flight or whatever but gradually uh, gradually he's brought me home and uh, and it's wonderful. So we have two kids. Um, both are married to wonderful, uh, wonderful spouses, and they each have two kids, boy and a girl, and they're on opposite coasts. So we're on planes a lot, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I'm just grateful beyond words. And yeah, and that they, and that they, those kids, <laughs> those kids actually survived, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no, but they're, they're great kids and very, very solid beautiful people and I'm thankful but that's uh, God, that's God's work that's not because I am such a great mother because I'm not <laughs> we we're all uh learning right and we're, we're just here to we're just here to birth them and kind of give them that space to grow into who they're gonna be uh but that man that's oh it takes a lot to be detached also from the outcome about how our children turn out (laughs) good luck with that one good luck yeah (laughs) so hard yeah Cheryl I wanted you to share the story of when you took your daughter to uh 
get horseback riding lessons because I think that I I don't know I really like that because it says a lot about the woman you you became and kind of trying things out so would you would you mind sharing that oh that okay okay (laughs) so um when I was a, when I was a kid, my grandmother would take me down to this ranch just below their place, and um, where I where I would ride horses, and always loved horses. Never had had one of my own. And so, years later, you know, we're living on a country acreage. I'm married to a veterinarian. Um, our daughter's five, and this friend and this friend tells tells us he's actually a, he's actually a farmer that my husband does work for. He tells us about this pony that he knows about that this little girl wants to sell. She's outgrown outgrown this pony. So he takes me down, we bring this little Shetland back and Shetlands are notorious, notorious for being um, crafty. You know, they'll rub you off trees, they'll take you off. And, and this pony did rub our son off, off of her back um, um, out in our orchard. But I brought this pony home for, for our daughter and the same farmer said, well, you know, there's a shortlisted Canadian, you know, Olympic rider a mile from our house and she gives lessons and you know you might want to get her oriented and take her over there so i did so i took her so i took the pony and whose name was ladybug by the way <laughs> cute and uh and took our daughter over there and she had a lot of fun but then i soon realized that uh yeah this was also for me mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so i got a horse and then rode dressage for many years after that but as an outgrowth of that i thought once again how we need to give ourselves permission to find these joys and not just live them out through other people and and i don't know really what that has to do with all of this but um yeah it was it was a it it was like a recapture of something that I had longed for in my own childhood, which was a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Is that what you were asking? Yes, yes, yes. No, I love it because a lot of times we think, we were talking about this when you and I were uh, chatting the other time that we think, oh, I've already learned what I've had to learn. And, you know, and, and, and so taking on even new passions, you know, as adults and things like that. And the fact that you competed <laughs> as well as an equestrian, you know, I, I think that that is just so beautiful uh, and so inspiring so that's why I wanted you to share that story yeah just knowing there's um you can always keep learning new stuff you can always keep learning new things and growth is never finished you know another thing that you and I talked about too which has a lot to do with our pasts and our presence and our futures is that even brain science has changed. You know, when I was raising my kids, they, they told us that a kid's personality was formed by the age of five and that, you know, parents, you're on, you know, you're on till, especially till age five, because if you don't give them what they need, they're going to have this huge deficit their whole lives. And I, my friends and I have talked about this and we just thought that was just horrible. It was horrible for, for moms to be hearing that stuff because, you know, what do we know, we're hardly out of our, you know, out of our teens or twenties and, and whenever we have kids and, and this is new to us and we're going to do the best we can, but come on. <laughs> so you the others, like we're going to yeah. mess up. I, I know, know. I, I messed up a lot. <laughs> Everybody messes Everybody. up. 
we you know we can't give our kids everything that they need but mm-hmm. but uh, I had a therapist you know when I was working through a lot of my stuff in my 30s I had a therapist say to me Cheryl you know show yourself some grace here there's a lot of problematic parenting that's healed later in life you know and it's never it's never too late for healing and for growth and you know when you're coming from the basement you're starting from a different place than somebody who starts on the top floor in their parenting <laughs> and um let's say i want to get back to what we were talking all about but the, but the brain science now you know brain science has changed to show that even well into our well until we die that we're still forming new neurons we're still developing new neural connections our brains are always changing and growing and that you know things like nutrition, which is a choice, you know, things like exercise, which is a choice can make huge differences that, you know, some of the time, some of these health issues where people say, well, you know, I've got this genetic predisposition to whatever, mm-hmm. lots of times it's a genetic, you know, or it's a familial dietary pattern, mm-hmm. which, can, which can be changed. Yes. Epigenetics. That's why now they're talking about epigenetics yeah. too, like changing, yeah. changing the whole way in which we're supposed to go just by our lifestyle and our, our yeah. thoughts. And the, the concept too, of just how much influence there is on our, you know, our emotions influence every, you know, our outcome as well, that spirituality as well, I feel has a huge um impact as well and huge i mean so it's like we're a whole being right (laughs) so well and even these crazy screens you know with my work i'm on this screen an awful lot and you know it has to be a real intentional disconnect for periods of time just to engage you know flesh and bone you know touch the earth go outside barefoot you know to be connected with the natural world and not just the virtual one Mm. yes no that is that is so true okay now as we wrap up is there anything specific that you want to share that i have not asked about whether in in any regards to either well your book will talk a little bit more about how people can get it but is there anything i did not ask Anything you didn't ask, I don't know. You're pretty good. (laughs) No, you're really good. (laughs) Or something that you're like, oh, that I don't want you to like, when we hang up for you to be like, man, I didn't say this part. I'd really wanted to say, and we're probably going to do that. I know I I do that myself. I'm like, man, I didn't ask her this. So uh, is there something that you'd like to share with the listeners that I have not asked you? I'll think of it in the shower when I'm feeding the dogs, but... But, uh, yeah, but I, I guess that for anybody who's in a place of of um, of dark grief, that um, I already said this, but just be patient. Um, you aren't alone in it. If you choose to seek the help of God, He's there. You know, He's as near as a whisper. And um, and that in the story, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the story. And you can reach me at CherylBostrom.com. And uh, yeah, I'd love to connect. Wonderful. Perfect. Is that the best place to find Sugar Birds is on your website or where would be other places people can find it? I have links to buy. If you want a a personalized or signed copy, I've got a link on my website and other links where you can get it. There's also an audio book read by the award-winning Jane Entwistle. She's got like four pages of books on Audible, Um, but you can find it anywhere. 
I love audibles because I love one, you know, listening while I'm walking my dog. So, uh, so I might, I might get the audible version. <laughs> that will be, that will be what I'll be listening. If people see me crying while I'm walking my dog, they'll be like, what's going on? <laughs> oh my gosh, Cheryl, it's been such an honor to have you. And uh, again, to be able to chat with you and connect with you in this way. Thank you so much for taking time of sharing your story, of sharing Aggie and Celia's story. And there was the other fourth character. It was Burnaby and the other one, Cab Cabot? Cabot. Mm -hmm. Cabot and Cabot. So these four characters that the listeners will get to find out more about in the book. So make sure to read Sugar Birds. And if there's a way of being able to reach you with any thoughts that they have on the website, they could reach you. Okay. So when you read it, reach, reach Cheryl and share with her what touched you the most of her book. So thank you so much again. Thanks, Kendra. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.